Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building. you set yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money from the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march or demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marching never changed anything. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position 
to point the finger today at the white man and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he, has, he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, uh, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, he'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen. My name is Craig Olwert. I'm an assistant professor at Urban Studies and Planning. I specialize in economic development, and with this semester we've been studying our gentrification. Gentrification is the change of a neighborhood, usually from low income. You start having people move in, they redevelop it, and it becomes a high income area. And frequently with that, displacement occurs. So the poor people get forced out. My name is Levi Draper, and I am currently homeless. I just basically sleep around wherever I can find a safe, chill, quiet, respectful spot to tuck away. They've been expanding the definition, and they've also shrunk the definition. So is it just upgrading of a neighborhood? Does it have to start as low-income or not? Or is it like in an area that used to be industrial? If you all of a sudden start building housing in there, you don't, you're not going to really displace anybody. You're just creating new housing. But because it usually was industrial areas that's near to poor neighborhoods, low-income neighborhoods, that can even be considered gentrification. So there's been debate in the literature about what the true definition is. Not only did residential communities get built, but also these mega projects that created literally giant shopping malls surrounded by luxury condominiums, office complexes, these massive projects. It started basically in the larger global cities. So normally when most literature starts, it's basically London and New York but it has then expanded, so that's pretty much everywhere now. Generally, it's happened the more in the larger cities. So the bigger the global city, the more likely it is going to have gentrification, and it's a lesser effect in cities that, especially if they're having low growth. So it depends on the population growth, how much pressure there is for gentrification. An area that's declining or stable in population is probably less gentrification pressure than in a city that's having a lot of population growth. Media, um, they keep they talk about it a lot. 
Yeah, so I think a lot of the media, I mean, they can they can serve it both good and bad. So they can advertise it, and a lot of times, because gentrification has become such a negative word, and it's, it's because of that displacement so associated with it, they can use other alternative words where there's a renaissance for the city, there's a revitalization of the city, there's a regrowth of the city, a rebirth of the city. Those are phrases they'll use, which they basically mean gentrification, but they're trying to take out the negativity of it. And, and that usually happens when the city's going to advertise some new growth that's going on, and the media will bring that up. But then there's also the fighting for the neighborhoods, and then there's gentrification being fought. You know, and then in that case, they bring out all the problems that happens and all the people, and the social equity issues where people are really being displaced and sort of like, how are we taking care of those people? I don't follow any sort of media too much. Um, I like hearing directly from people, um, and you get a lot of different types of perspective you don't get that one kind of perspective that's meant to be put out there you hear you're hearing it from several different people and different perspectives and I find that that just educates me a lot better listening to other people. Some of the good effects are rise in property values which means you're also having a rise in income taxes change in businesses more jobs from those new businesses that are hopefully being brought in um, change in the tourism, usually increased tourism because you have more nice neighborhoods, becomes the area becomes known, which then makes you probably better off at maintaining your global status as a status city because you have all these neat areas that people want to come visit. So sort of the positive side, we're like, oh yeah, we want gentrification. Of course, the negative side is then housing prices start skyrocketing and then your working class people, lower income people can't afford it. Um, and then they tend to get displaced. Yeah, you know that people who have very little money don't have the resources to protect their own neighborhoods. So when developers and wealthier uh, investors arrive in the outlying areas, they could just scoop up land or even kick people out because most of the poor people who lived in those peripheral areas didn't actually own their land, didn't have title to their land, so they didn't even have legal protection to keep what they had settled on. Some of the things that process, you know, what can you do to help with the displacement? Um, they're starting to include things like inclusionary zoning. Yes, yeah, so if you actually make it that, hey, if you're going to build these units, a certain percentage of them have to be for low or moderate income, that can keep some of that mix so that's not, gee, just a rich playground. It also means the people who are working downtown, providing those new restaurants and stores with employees, the people can stay downtown versus having to come in from the edge of the city. So some of that mixture, I think that's one of the things that can help the most, trying to alleviate that. And then some of that is just trying to promote home ownership for people earlier so that before an area gentrifies, they actually own it. It's not a cure-all, but I think those are the two methods I think that would probably help the most you know, in trying to maintain and hopefully help prevent more displacement. walking on Tulse Hill and um, here used to stand Dick Shepherd's School and that's all gone now, bulldozed. So, um, Lama Council allowed this gated community to, um, to emerge. This is a mark of gentrification as I see it and um, very sad really because um, these were good schools. I remember 30 years ago Many of these properties were um, needed renovation, needed work. There was quite a number of squats here, broken down houses. 
But now, as you can see, they're um, all being renovated. Now these houses probably go for something like um, £400,000, I would have thought. Many young people have just been denied the opportunity to live in the area where they were raised, and that's, that's a crying shame. This unit here used to be a buzzing um, record shop called Safana B, and uh, many young reggae heads like me would um, pack into it and uh, buy out reggae releases for the weekend. In those days, we must have had about six, seven record shops, reggae record shops in the Brixton area. But now, it's, it's all changed. Where before, you could only maybe um, buy West Indian food produce. Now, you can buy food produce from all over the world. This unit here used to sell um, West Indian bread, bun and cheese, you can get your fish fritters. And now it, um, this unit that sells burritos, tortas, burgers and burger wings. If you're on minimum wage and you're looking for somewhere to have your lunch and you're faced with um, a lunch that costs about six, seven pounds, who do these shops really cater for? Those unique units that used to um, sell to um, the people who used to live around here. In some ways, they've been forced out. In the last couple of years, more and more restaurants, coffee shops are coming, and more retail shops are closing down. Used to be busy, very busy on Friday, Saturday, but now like a normal days. Because now, if you see this, in a weekend, if you come in a like Saturday or Friday, your whole food customer, whole block area. People like me have seen a lot of changes. There's no way about that. And I must say, as much as things are not 100% perfect, but it's a lot better than when I came here. The new have kind of swept away the old, and I like to see the old when I used to walk in Brixton Market many years ago. But I guess you cannot stop, you cannot stop progress. The market that we're in now, I mean, as you probably know about, um, you know, even three or four years ago, it was completely empty, completely deserted. And now it feels a bit like um, Islington, to be honest, or, uh, or Borough Market. When I first moved to Brixton, I was, you know, in my 20s. And so then what attracted me was that it was sort of young and, you know, vibrant and, I suppose, a bit edgy. Um, and now I'm in my 40s, and sort of what I like now is that it's uh, become a bit more sedate and, uh, you know, middle class. So, I mean, in, in a way, sort of Brixton's become, you know, it's it, it sort of changed with me. I have to admit, it's nice to see um, a variety of people enjoying Brixton as I never thought imaginable when I was 17, 18, walking through these same, same alleyways and, and uh, byways. Because Brixton was a feared place to be, wasn't it? Oh, don't go to Brixton, people would say. But now, as we can say, it's very pleasant. What I do miss is that constant pounding of reggae. I really miss that.
making a criminal living scaling power poles 100 feet in the air, breaking into electrical power boxes. We call them illegal hookup men. Welcome to the dangerous world of stealing electricity in the city of Detroit. Now you're about to meet three men who live in this illegal world. Three men who admit they've been hacking into public power lines for years. My name is Brian Brooks. I've hooked up lights for the past few years. Altogether, I've done it 75 to 100 times. This is 29-year-old Brian Brooks, but sources say around town, he's known as the hookup guy. For 250 bucks, he admits he'll hook you up at the power box or climb a pole to provide you with stolen power. Even though he's been shocked many times doing it. I would usually get electrocuted every once in a while. It would hurt the out of my arm. It would scare the out of me. Oh yeah, Brian realizes he could die. But for him, it's all about the money. I got the pliers in my back pocket, the wire cutters. Okay, if I got $250 in my pocket, am I willing to get electrocuted? Yeah. No, but also yes. Go up there, get electrocuted. I ain't charged enough. If I get done with it without getting electrocuted, I'm happy I didn't get electrocuted. I'm happy I got the money. This is 46-year-old Kenneth Walls, actually caught on videotape by DTE Energy hidden cameras, hooking up a Detroit strip club with stolen power. He says he's been doing this since he was 10 years old, and you won't believe who taught him the trade. At that time, it was Edison. They turned the power and gas off in this wintertime, and my mother told me to go out there and take the locks off. I was very handy. And she told, showed me how to turn it on. That's right. His own mother taught him. And he considers himself an expert. But he says a lot of the other guys have no idea what they're doing. I've been to places where guys didn't know what they was doing. They, they weren't electricians, and they tapped into three-phase lines and burned up equipment at different buildings, uh, stereos, uh, cameras, and TVs, burnt them out at houses. All the light bulbs blow out because they didn't know what they were doing. Take a look at this, girl. This electric box has been destroyed, but they've taken a piece of cable to restore the electricity. It's so dangerous. But Michael Lynch, chief security officer for DTE Energy, a man who's made it his mission to stop electrical thieves, says it gets a lot worse. Somebody had to climb this pole, get up on top of the transformers, and look what they've done. They put jumper cables on the primary wire. Often, he says, these hookup men will actually leave live power lines like this one, just lying unprotected on the ground. Broken. Sometimes the lines are wide open to boot. How do we know there's electricity flowing through this wire? Let me check. Okay. When that beeps, Bill, that means there's electricity flowing through. 120 volts. 120 volts of electricity going through that wire. Anybody could touch that right now, and, and they'd be killed? They could get killed right now. So just who's responsible for this dangerous hookup? It's us. Lynch says it's this man, James Lee Anderson, a convicted felon with a violent past. I've been in prison, bank robbery, arm robbery. Lights get cut off when they need it, and I'm charging 80, 125, 150. Now, to stop this dangerous crime, the Detroit Police Department. Oh, this guy. He's caused us a lot of trouble. Michael Lynch and his staff at DTE Energy. 
and the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office are cracking down on energy thieves like never before. If you play with the box, you play with the wires, it's an automatic five-year felony. They've increased arrests from just two or three a year back in 2007 to over 120 arrests this year. These guys are, out, are doing something that's just outrageously dangerous. They're climbing up a pole that's energized with equipment, 13,200 volts, and they're hooking up an electric line to it. Yes, it is incredibly risky. Steal electricity and you could be photographed in the act by DTE Energy cameras. You could get arrested just as soon as you hit the ground coming off that pole. It'll be five months to five years straight uh, Department of Correction. And you could be sentenced up to five years in prison. That's exactly what happened to Kenneth Walls, one of the three hookup men we just introduced you to. But most of all, you run the risk of being killed. Just look at this never-before-seen video of an electricity thief in Detroit actually being hit with a bolt of electricity. He tries to rig up a residential power box. And even after all of this, just watch what he does next. Yep, for the promise of making a few bucks, he just had to try it again. That is just incredible video you won't see anywhere else, and all of it, including those exclusive interviews with our three hookup guys, was shot by DTE Energy. You should know that those special hidden cameras are a big reason why Detroit police have been able to make so many of these arrests this year. You should also know that I actually played a major role in getting DTE to install those hidden cameras, because it was me that first went to Michael Lynch a year and a half ago with the original idea of trying to catch these guys on videotape. Bill, if it wasn't for you coming to us and challenging us to look at technology, we would have never have been able to develop it. And as a result, 121 people have been arrested. And it's, it, we thank you for helping us in developing that technology. Once again, the maximum penalty for stealing... They bypassed my meter. You have to take pliers and take this off. So we can't do that. This is dangerous. Richard Moore says someone connected a power line in his meter box. They come in through the ground and come up through here and did a very good job of hiding it. Bypassed me and went into Progress Energy. Moore says he didn't notice the theft because the power line is underground. He says someone aware of the theft alerted him and Moore then reported it to Progress Energy. And they come out and looked at it and I spoke with an investigator and uh, he informed me that it wouldn't cause me no grievance, that it was under investigation. Well, three months later, I get a bill in the mail for over $3,500. Moore showed us the Progress Energy bill, $3,573.69 to be exact. He also showed us a receipt by an electrician stating that the power line was connected to the Progress Energy side of his meter. I was told by three three or four different people, I am not at fault here. I, I'm not the one that was stealing. I'm a loyal customer to Progress Energy. They're getting their money out of the victim and not the actual thief. Moore says a suspect told investigators he was paying Moore a monthly fee for the illegal hookup. Moore denies that and says no one at Progress Energy will take his calls. Going up against somebody like Progress Energy, they got deep pockets and friends in high places. I've practically lost this battle. Progress Energy spokesman Jeff Bridges tells us after an extensive investigation, the company decided to bill Richard Moore for the stolen electricity. Bridges says no criminal charges were filed. The public staff of the North Carolina Utility Commission agreed with the company's decision 
Richard Moore says he's considering a lawsuit to recover money he says he doesn't owe Progress Energy. Larry? All right, today's podcast is titled um, Classified, and we, we touched on, introduced this on this podcast yesterday. Classified, um, the landless people movement. Classified, the landless people movement. Area code 619-768-2945, the live stream number. I'm going to give just a glimpse and that's why we played that last audio or two on what I don't know if it's a movement I don't know if you can correctly call it a movement but I mean but I want you to recognize it and I'm even uh, just figuring out how logistically I'm going to well not logistically yeah I guess logistically too how to organize a news news and information channel, website or something. Well video on demand news service, that's it. Video on demand news service. Uh, where property owners can recognize how they might get attacked or if they're being attacked, how to combat it. Now, once again, the name of this podcast is Classified, the Landless People Movement. We may as well throw just not lame, may as well throw if they own a building, if they own a building, a house, shack, mansion, whatever. As a matter of fact, let's even throw out that term shack. If you just have a shack or a rundown garage, you might not think much, you know, you might not think much about it. But the, believe me, there's somebody that you don't know that that will want possession of that sooner or later. And oftentimes they might try to take it. Now the you can go an entire lifetime and many people do. Um and this is the when and if situation. It's not a question of when you're a state and your estate might be one little lonely shack or one little lonely garage in some alley somewhere. It's not a question of if somebody will attack your estate to try to take that, that garage or shack. It's a question of when. So you or your grandparents, somebody that you're connected can live an entire lifetime and not get attacked by somebody who is landless or doesn't have a piece of real estate or whatever, some type of wealth like that, shelter like that. But it's a, like I said, you can live an entire lifetime, but if it skips your generation, it might hit your children's generation or grandchildren. It could be the government. 
there are many ways that that this classicide can morph out. Um, in some places, it, it's a legitimate movement. And I'm not putting any conspiracy theories out there. I I can give you some concrete examples. But what I I want to do is I'm going to read part of what I read yesterday on Classicide, uh, give an example of what happened over in China, probably Vietnam and Cambodia. And then what's happening here in the United States, I'm going to give you some personal examples of what happened to me so you can recognize it American style. Now, I played the electric theft, utility theft. Because that's one of the ways that a landless person steal electricity because they just don't have, you know, the deposit of money to pay the electric bill or what have you. Um, That's one group of people. But there's also a group of people that most people would not suspect that know how to rob you of get put it this way. I I give you an example with me. I had a which gave birth to this podcast this month. I had a a um what do you call it? Originally the person was a house sitter. I didn't want to leave the house empty. So somebody I knew, and at that time trusted, said, all right, look, I'll be out of town for, you know, two, three months. You, you and your daughter can stay. You know, I got, there's a three-bedroom house. Got two bedrooms there. And this pay the utilities that you'll be using, you know, the internet lights and all that. They're using that anyway. So pay that, but I'm going to have to pay me a penny's worth of it. Um, now, long story short, let me isolate it to an incident because after that went south and they decided to try to take that, was they were running up water bills. Now, let's say the water bill is in the house sitter's name. It got on it. And that water bill is not paid. Matter of fact, it wasn't. It was the bill was like eighteen hundred dollars, and the utility, the water company, which most water companies uh, in the United well, I can't say most, but many of them in the United States are that's a municipal profit center. You know, whatever Pittsburgh, Los Angeles, whatever. Their local water company, that's that's a, a profit center for, you know, whatever the municipality. So the they don't they don't they don't care whose name is on the bill. This is the reality of it. Because they don't chase the person down who's on that bill. They'll send out letters. Let's say you got Santa Claus is on the on the water bill, and Santa Claus is responsible for paying the water bill. Uh, let's say at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington D.C. Okay, well 
Santa Claus stopped paying the bill. So now here are the options that the water company has. The water company can take Santa Claus into civil court and sue Santa Claus in civil court and hopefully win a judgment and the judge orders, you know, you we got to either uh, Santa Claus has to pay that bill or we're going to assess a judgment or garnish his paycheck or Section 8 certificate or whatever. Or that certificate or whatever they can garnish. That's an option that the local water company has. And in my experience, they don't do that. Municipal water companies, to my knowledge, there might be some exceptions. I haven't heard of but in my personal experience, the municipal water company, they don't chase down Santa. They don't care whose name's on the damn bill. To the property. Now, Santa Claus, in this case, didn't own the property. So, they attached the $1,800 water bill to the property, and then, you know, if you don't pay, if you own the property, in the case of me, didn't pay that water bill at eighteen hundred dollars, then it can go up for auction and somebody can buy your house. That's a now some many people that do that, that's how they just get somebody else to pay their bills. But there are other people that use that tactic along with some other tactics to get your house on the cheap. Matter of fact, matter of fact, let's stay with this same example. Let's say I didn't pay the $1,800 water bill. Now, of course, when, you know, when it goes up for auction, it's posted in the paper and all that. But hypothetically, a person can go to the auction and buy that product for eight, well, at a cheap price. Way below market value. And there are people that do that on a professional basis. So I, I lump them into the landless category. All right. Um, and that's how a lot of people do lose property. Now, let me... Um, okay, yep. So much going on on this internet. Let me read um, classified. All right, classified is a deliberate and systematic destruction in whole in part of a social class through persecution, uh, perse- uh, perse- uh, persecution and violence. And I mean, persecution is a big word. There are, matter of fact, let me. Going back to the example of the guy that was electrical theft, let me. This is how this one, I'm glad we're on the internet here, not regulated. In rent court, urban or metro area, I'm going to use that here. In any major metro area here in the United States, probably global, but I'm using the United States because that's what I know. In rent court, there are people there that 
are skilled. And if you change, basically you're wasting your money. If you put a lock and key back on the door, even some of these security locks like Medico, because they know how to change locks. If you have the water shut off, unless you have the, um, what do you call it, the water company take the meter, I mean, remove it, they know how to get the water cut back on, which is pretty simple in, in most cases with a municipality. Now, not cut on through the system, it's cut on illegally, but they know how to take a wrench or whatever in, or they got a friend with a key. And have a cut back on. These are things that most people, and I guess if we had to have a workshop on this or a webinar on how to, because this, this, a lot of these people have skill sets that you're not going to pick up doing a background check um, on a property. And then uh, some of these people, like I said, professionals, they they look like regular non-threatening tenants, but they 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 have a mission to take your house. And by nickel and dime, you with utilities that you didn't run up, particularly water bills, the big um. Because, like, say, the, the electric company, it all depends on there. We'll have workshops on this, too. Basically, I recommend personal rev- residents take everything off the grid. Even the locks to your house, don't, don't, um, the lock and key um, method, I recommend. Don't even use a regular lock and key. Matter of fact, you know, if you go to a hotel or motel and they've got, um, you know, these pass keys that have to be, you know, rekeyed every 24 hours or so, I say, if you particularly you got rental property, install something like that. You have to stay a step ahead of your crooks. But these are all, like I say, this is classified, in my opinion. This is how it looks American stuff. Anyway, but um, class that is a deliberate systematic destruction of the whole part of the social. And this, like I said, I'm, I'm using Washington, D.C. as a backdrop. This is one way they can wipe out people. Now, you know, I should, you know, let me clean that statement up. Because um, there really is no. I would say organize a group that you can call they. There's no particular person you can call they. There are people out here with their own personal interests, and this is what they do for whatever reason. So it's not a con- I wouldn't say a conspiracy, but so I, I, I need to rephrase that because it, it, it's really no they. Um, although from time to time local government agencies 
and come up with a policy that, because local government agencies within municipalities, they need revenue. And they're looking for ways, you know, generate revenue. One example would be, you know, like cars. With tickets, you're going to play the tickets. They'll put a boot on the car. They're going to play the boot on the car. They'll auction your car off, and the money goes to the city. Well, now, depending on the municipality you live in, they can do the same thing with a home. All right? They can get you through water bills, and they can get you through code violations, even if you didn't create those code violations. And that can, if you have a property owner that doesn't know how the system, a municipal, what's the, uh, let me pronounce it right, municipalization works, or how a municipality can weaponize property. A municipality, when they want to raise income or raise revenue for their, for their, um, for, you know, what they need in their coffers. They typically weaponize. They can weaponize you. They can weaponize something that you own. I class. I put all that under classified, and through that, that's how gentrification can happen. In the case of South Africa, what the Economic Freedom Fighters Political Party wants wants to do, they want to. Change the Constitution. Where, now, this is, I'm going to give you this in two parts. It wants to change the Constitution so that the white farmland is given, the government can expropriate it and own the land and then distribute it from there. But I'm looking at once they, let's say they do that, the Constitution still hasn't changed. And the new landlords can have their land expropriated at any time in the future. Anyway, let, let me, I'll give some examples of that. Classes, all right, sir, all right, all right. The term classified was termed by sociologist Michael Mann as a term uh, similar to but distinct from genocide. Examples are Joseph Stalin's mass killing of the affluent and affluent, but if you're a property owner, on planet Earth, this this is a simple, normal, run-of-the-mill house. On planet Earth, basically, you're part of the affluent crowd, believe it or not. Uh, examples include Joseph Stalin's mass killing of affluent middle-class uh, peasants, uh, titled Kulaks, uh, that's K-U-L-A-K-S, who were identified as class enemies by the Soviet Union. Similar classified has been committed by China during the Great Leap Forward by North Vietnam as part of the land reform in Khmer uh, uh, Rouge uh, regime in Cambodia. All right. Now, let me... The Great Leap, and I understand... Matter of fact, a lot of these Asians, well, that come from China. I, 
Now I'm getting their background. We can, matter of fact, let me, um, I'll tell you what, let me, okay. Let me show you how what, what's happening in one part of the world is affecting this part of the world here in the United States. Mass killings of the landlords under Mao Zedong. Part of Mao Zedong's land reform during the late phase of the Chinese Civil War in the early People's Republic of China was a campaign of mass killings of landlords. In order to redistribute land to the peasant, uh, the, the peasant class and landless workers, it uh, resulted in millions of deaths. Those of landlords, not poor people. Those killed were targeted on the basis of class rather than ethnicity. Uh, so the terming of the campaign genocide, uh, and then they got a term I can't pronounce, all right, was incorrect. Um, class motivation, mass killings contributed um, through almost 30 years of social and economic transportation to Maoist China resulting in the deaths of 90 to 95% of what used to be a 15 million landlord class in China. That sounds like a lot of people, and it is. But, of course, look at China's population. So the mass killings, I mean, you can read this online yourself, the mass killings of landlords in the Mao Zedong dates from 1947 to 1951, and from 1940, uh, and then it goes on up to 76. The primary target were extermination of landlords. We're not talking about what you, ex- we're not talking about Rolls Royce people. We're just talking about, you know, they might have a, a little, they might be nine to five workers or whatever, or farmers. And they got a rental property, just maybe one. Okay. Um, the extermination of landlords, deaths from 1947 to 1951, anywhere from, they have on the low end, 4,500,000 landlords were killed and their property taken from them and then given to a poor person that didn't have land. And if you look up some of the videos on YouTube, I mean, the way they they humiliated them first. And it, over here, they used the legal system to humiliate you. All right. And then um, the totals from 1947 to 1976, People that well, many people that listen to this podcast, they were around in 1976. Anywhere from 13 million five hundred thousand to 14,250,000 landlords were killed. Perpetrators, radicalized Chinese peasants. Now, what what does the EFF have over in South Africa? Radicalized, poor folk thinking they're going to get a piece of the pie. And more than likely, well, they won't. 
Initial classified 1947 to 1951 in, in China. In 1946, three years for the, before the foundation of the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party of China launched through uh, I mean, uh, uh, a thorough land reform which won uh, the party millions of supporters. See, there's a lot of poor people. That's why they go after poor folks. To back their agenda. Or to do their dirty work to back their agenda. All right, which won party millions of supporters among the poor and middle uh, peasantry. The land and other property landlords were expropriated and redistributed so that um, the property of landlords was uh, expropriated and redistributed so that each household in a rural village would have comparable holdings. The agrarian revolution was made for, oh, let me go back. All right, 1947 to 1950 killings. The idea of a violent campaign against landlord class was already drawn up by 1947 by uh, King Singh an expert on terror techniques. Um, ben Bishi, a Rim Bishi, a member of the, uh, the uh, party's central committee, likewise stated in 1948 speech that 30 million landlords and rich peasants would have to be destroyed. And they, they, that's they were out with it in your face. Over here is more discreet. Like I say, over here they, they use the legal system. Oh, man, I, I got to stop using that word today. All right, shortly after the founding of the PRC, they reform according to Mao. Uh, that's why I got to have a news thing with it, because there's a lot of things that pinpoint agencies and break down how they operate and how they can affect you if you don't know the, the municipal landscape where your particular property is in a political landscape for where you live. Some some areas of the United States won't have any problems. But the larger the population in the United States that municipality has is going to be more regulated and you, you really got to be aware of your rights and how to protect your property. Uh, let's see, let's get done this. Uh, we got I gave you the death toll. Okay, well, you know what? 76. All right. That, that's what they go on to. Now, most of the people that have listened to this podcast have probably had Chinese food from a carryout. Yeah, I mean, they're all over the place. Many of the Chinese entrepreneurs that you see. In the United States now, ones that own the liquor stores, the carryouts, the many of those people had to flee China because just like over here, because we're on this classified thing, most of the the black folk during the Jim Crow era that that got lynched, not all but many, well well over fifty percent were wealthy black folk and Italian and Jewish and they were wealthy. Over here we we, we put this race spin on it and I'm not saying it doesn't that doesn't factor in, but 
you put the race spin on it, but it, it really it's the dirt poor poor people jacking up what they perceive the wealthier people. Black Wall Street is an example of that. In my opinion, that's an example of that. The sundown town things, that whole era, it was basically poor folk burning, killing and burning down and telling the relatives of these wealthy, I mean, people who own 100, 200, 500, 1,000 acres of land. Black, but they happen to be black. Get out of town by sundown. Well, that same thing happened before it happened here in the United States, over in China, and even during our lifetime. With the great leap forward. So a lot of the Chinese entrepreneurs that you see with the Chinese carryouts, or the, uh, happened in North Korea too, that, 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 that owned the, uh, the carryout, the, uh, the, the convenience store, the dry cleaner, a lot of those people were entrepreneurs that had to flee China, North Korea, and start over fresh in this country. One of them, I'll do a, I'll do a podcast just on this guy one day, maybe this week. Um, I think his name is Harry Wu. Came to this country with 40, I think $40. Oh, let me add some time to this. If I can find my studio, I gotta find my studio. Um, well, let me do that. And I, I also want to touch on Francis Cross Welding. If my studio will let me do it, okay. But I gotta add time on. Uh, before I okay, wait a minute. Uh... Okay, I think we saved it. Um, okay, Gary, I had the time. All right, so that's how a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, they had they they came in this country. And they had an entrepreneurial background already. They knew how to be landlords because they were landlords. They knew how to run a business. And so they just moved from one location and they came over here. So, so it, that's what they had to do. That's a result of the class side in their country. All right. Now, like I say, over here, it's more subtle. A lot of it can be done through the legal system. Not as a mass movement, but there are people out here that know how to make a living on it, and they know how to target people with some type of wealth. And some type of wealth is you just got one little lonely house. Let's go to another form of this, which there is no they, but it happens quite often. Um, the case of Dr. Francis the late Dr. Francis Quest Welton. And this one you can follow along on. 
Dr. Francis Quest Wells was lived in Washington, D.C. when she was alive. And um, she lived in the Gold Coast part of Washington, D.C. Houses at that time. You know, on the block that she lived in, about 500,000 or more. And her block got gentrified. And here's how it was done. Um, essentially, when somebody died on the block, there, there's a school that's one of her neighbors. That was one of her neighbors. Um, it's a Jewish day school, but it could be any kind of school. It was a school. Um, but every time somebody died, and this is what, what I talk about social capital and estate planning. And what we're going to have to have some people on maybe this week or next week to talk about estate planning and how to protect your neighborhood if you live in an urban area. Uh, every time somebody passed in that block, apparently the other neighbors did not get together and say, let's buy this so-and-so's house or the Smith family house. Every time somebody passed on that block where Dr. Francis Quest Wellesley lived on the Gold Coast in Washington, D.C., the Jewish day school contacted the estate and bought the property. And they kept on doing it. And then it got to a critical mass point where they they uh, they hired a zoning attorney because they want to extend the boundaries because they had a plan. They weren't buying those properties just to be buying them. They wanted to extend the boundaries of their school. So they hired a zoning attorney. And in this case, the they is the Jewish day school. Nothing wrong with it. Everything he did was perfectly legal. And anything that anybody else could have done. They got a zoning attorney, got a zoning variant, and then they were allowed to raise or tear down these homes that they purchased and extend their campus of their school. And they kept on extending, buying, buying, buying the house and extending that playground up until Dr. Francis Chris Wellesley's property line. She was the last person standing as far as a regular residential house in her neighborhood at the time of her passing. And my theory is that it really stressed her out, and I think that contributed to her her demise. I spoke to her, like I said, two years before she passed. On this, because she put me on to, uh, oh, man, it's a film, and I've interviewed somebody on this three times on this podcast. I, I still can't remember it. 
Uh, Chief Shango is a guy I interviewed. Uh, oh, you know what? I got it in my um, I got it on my Amazon thing. Let me look it up. It's a documentary that I, I highly recommend. It, it, Dr. Francis Cross Wilson turned me on to it. Never watched this thing at least ten times. Interview uh, Chief Shango. He was uh, one of the prominent people east of Cincinnati, Ohio. He was featured in it. Um, ah, it's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, it's a documentary that takes place in Cincinnati, Ohio of a, a historic black neighborhood that got gentrified by some um, uh, you know, up-and-coming uh, gay professionals. And it's uh, Flag Wars. That's the name of it. Got it. Flag Wars. Uh, you can go on YouTube. It used to be on YouTube. It was entirely free. I don't know if it still is, but the trailer probably still is on YouTube. And you can rent it or buy it on Amazon and YouTube. The Flag Wars, that's the name of the documentary that uh, Dr. Francis Cross Wilson took me on to. And like I said, I've interviewed uh, uh, Baba Chief Sung on, on this podcast at least three times. Anyway, they gentrified the neighborhood. And it, essentially, uh, in Cincinnati, what they call it is environmental court. Environmental court is a housing court, or basically a more accurate description, instead of using the housing court or environmental court, is code violation court. And in case of, and this is how they can, and I hate, I got to find a better word today. But this is how anybody or a group of people who get together to be a small group can take over and change the and do a classicide on a neighborhood or even the entire section of town or town. Because with how with 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 building code court, which is really the accurate violation. If you don't follow the code, if your building is not up to code, that whole class of people can be slowly removed legally out of that particular block. Flag Wars is a good illustration of that, that, that documentary. In the case of Bobby Sango, who's been like I said, on this podcast three times, his house was in good condition, but he had, uh, he's an artist, and he had a carving on um, the front of his house that one of the neighbors didn't like, and they reported. And it was against the particular code in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think it took him two years to get that straightened out. And there's some other characters in there too. Um, one I think her name was Regina Mitchell. She she passed on. 
Then she passed on to 39. But she's featured in the film as well. And her parents had left her and her brother a many mansion in Cincinnati. But her income was only $500 a month disability. And she just didn't have the income when she was hit off with all those with, with those code violations. Like removing cars out the her yard and that type of stuff. But that's how it's one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways is classified can be done here in the United States. I highly recommend the film Flag Wars. Now, going back to Francis Chris Wilson, if um, you go to uh, the District of Columbia, they have a, um, well, put it this way, not even going to the court case, which we did a review on that once. But essentially, Francis Cress Welsing was trying to fight that. She had hired at least three attorneys to fight that case because it was she was a lone wolf, but she was going up against a school, and a school is a community. And I think the distress just took her out. When she was the last person standing in their whole block got wiped out by that school. Once again, and anybody could have done the exact same thing as the school. That's why I want to put together a video on demand um, streaming news service to get this kind of information out. Because as we speak, there are people that are getting attacked, they got reversed. I mean, classified can happen to reverse mortgages, uh, municipal liens, such as water bills, uh, system-wise professional tenants, squatters, there's a whole lot of way. There are people right now standing Craigslist looking for their next victim. You're selling your house, and then you find out your house has been rented, and you can't find a squatter that took out an ad on Craigslist or whatever and collected thousands of dollars and skipped town, and then you're left holding the bag. There's a whole lot of ways you can get got via classified American style. And then you look at other countries and cultures, like in South Africa. South Africa has a law in the books for building hijacks. That's the law. It's on the books. It's a crime. Everybody knows about it. You can get arrested and taken off to prison. Here in this country, I call it housejacking. There's only one state out of the city that has passed legislation on housejacking, on building hijacking. That's Michigan. But I don't know if it's enforced yet. But when gentrification happens, it's a form of classified. And a lot of people just know, they don't know how it happened. They put a race thing in it. it, it like that, there's so much to it. That's why I need, I, I need to put a, a special news channel with different points of view, with different reporters and all that on it because it, it, it's a lot there. We'll cover more on classified because there's so much to it. I mean, 
we can actually do just a full podcast on that. On oh, hold, let me find my studio. Um, so, on that note, we'll be back tomorrow um, to wrap up, um, at least temporarily, this thing on classified and what's going on in South Africa and other parts of the world with this topic. Uh, and then we'll move on to something else because we'll open up my school next month. And um, these are some of the type of things that we'll be offering uh, on our on our course curriculum. All right, on that note, everyone have a good rest of the day. <laughs>